Go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 49, and I'll give you an idea of my, my strategy and tactics to get through this this morning. This is the last message on Genesis, which is very uh, bittersweet for me. Uh, it's been a really wonderful study with y'all, and Michael, do I need to turn this on, or are you... Huh? Okay. And, uh, and so as I considered this, you know, how do you wrap up um, several years, I think, now on Genesis? It's very tempting to want to do somewhat of a, I don't know, a biblical theological summary of the message of Genesis and try to tie everything together and give you kind of a, a zoomed out summary picture of it. And yeah, I think you're all very familiar with those sort of things. And, and it's kind of at odds with the, the approach that we've taken to this book all the way through, which was really to stay in, in the life and in the journey with these people that God is working at, uh, working at his purposes with all the way through and to, to very much stay contextually focused and, and to generally not go out and address other issues more than is absolutely necessary. We've taken some detours every once in a while, but for the most part, we've stayed right with it. And I, I really want to do that again this morning because I think it's so important for us to think that way first. And we'll talk about this a little bit as we move through the morning, but, but Scripture as a whole is an adequate and an intended source of theology, right? By that I mean systematic theology more, or even biblical theology. It's an intended source of you to look at things uh, as different as a prayer or a psalm, things like uh, a narrative and the principles in the narrative, and mine those things and consider those things wisely to see what as a whole the scriptures say about God, his purposes in the world, our place in nature in the world, and ultimately Christ and the deliverance that's to come and Christ's return. All of those things are intended and inadequate, the, the scriptures are adequate for that work, and yet a lot of times we too quickly move to mining passages for those things without first considering what they say in their original context to their original audience. And, and it's getting that element right first that's the only proper foundation for building a serious theology later. That is, we have to understand the meaning of the text as it stands before we can begin to consider its implications and applications to our lives or for constructing a systematic theology. That just means a cohesive, what does scripture say altogether about theology, or even a biblical theology, what is the overall message of this book. And so as we finish this out, I, I want to leave us in the same place that Moses's audience would be considering this. And to some extent, I want to leave you in the place that Jacob and his family are, are left at the end of this book. And I think it's really helpful and instructive for us. So now, strategy and tactics. There's no way I'm going to read 49 and 50 and have any time to talk. Uh, and we read 49 last week. So my plan is to move through three points this morning, and they're not perfectly chronological. 
Okay? I'm going to move through Jacob's death and some comments on Jacob's death. And you think, well, that's a grim way how to finish this book up. Actually, it's very hopeful. We're going to move through, through Jacob's death. And then we're going to rewind a little bit and consider the destiny of his children. Right? You see where I'm going with the Ds here? Right? So we have Jacob's death and then what Jacob has prophesied about the future of this now burgeoning nation that's going to come out of captivity 430 years later into the promised land. And then at the end of that, and this was the hard one to come up with a D for, I almost landed on determination, and then I thought that was awkward, so we didn't do that. At the end of that, we're going to consider, and you're going to say, well, this is very strange, we're going to consider Joseph's dread. Joseph's dread, the fear of the Lord that dominated Joseph's own perspective as he considers the deliverance that the Lord is working out for him. So there you go. There's maybe the overall theme is God's deliverance. So maybe that's a bonus, fourth D. But we're going to move through death, destiny, and dread to consider God's deliverance of his people and the trajectory that Genesis leaves us with. So for that, I would like to read uh, just a few sections of this. And again, it's not perfectly chronological, and so we're going to move reading in the same way that I've just indicated Joseph, or Jacob rather, gathers his children together and he prophesies, we'll cover that in a minute, the destiny of his children. And then after he has, pick up in Genesis 49 verse 28, after he has said these things to them when he blessed them, that's verse 28, he blessed them, everyone with the blessing appropriate to them. And then verse 29 of chapter 49, then he charged them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Now move down into chapter 50, and you'll notice that after a number of different things, that the Egyptians and the family of Jacob go up to the land, and in verse 10 you see, when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation, and Joseph, that's the he, observed seven days mourning for his father, and when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore, it was named Abel Mitzrayim, which is beyond the Jordan. And now notice verse 12. Thus, his sons did for him as he had charged them. What is that? Verse 13. His sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah. And then verse 14. After he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt. Now, I won't read for you. That's the death section. I won't read for you all the destiny. We'll talk about that in parts as we move through the prophecies for each one of the tribes, but I will direct your attention now, continuing where you were in, in chapter 50, that after they return from burying Jacob, this interesting thing happens in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. 
And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? That is a starting point for us discussing as we finish this out, Joseph's dread. Let's pray, and then we'll move through this. Father, I'm so grateful for the joy of having considered Genesis together now for several years. Lord, I'm, I'm so grateful that you have left us with a foundation for understanding you, for understanding your purposes, for understanding the great goal of your salvation to declare your own glory for your people. I pray that you would encourage our hearts, direct our hearts to Christ, and help us to pursue him from what we learned this morning in your word. We pray it by the power of your spirit and in your son's name for his glory. Amen. I wanted to finish, or I wanted to begin this morning out of order a little bit with, with Jacob's death because I think it's very revealing to us of, of this trajectory and this very winding road that Jacob has taken through uh, now the last many months that we've considered him together. And we've seen Jacob kind of at every point in his life before the Lord from when he's just kind of a desperate rogue who doesn't care very much about uh, God's purposes through his exile and his being brought back to the land by the power of God and the promise of God through many, many years of depression and desperation over the loss of his favorite son. We've seen his family racked by favoritism. We've seen him revived by God's unexpected and great mercy of discovering that Joseph is alive again. And we've seen him turn again to pray and be dependent on, on God as he leaves for a last time the land that is promised to him. The land is so bound up with his family and, and God's promises to them. And now we've seen, as we considered last week, the beginning of this this process of him dying and setting things in order for the nation. And I pointed out to you last week that for the first time in this family's history, from father to grandfather to great-grandfather, that one element of the promise has begun to come into focus. It's been promised to them that at the core of this blessing that God is working out in the world is that they will have children, that they will be a mighty nation, and from that nation there will come a deliverer. And, and yet... For generation to generation, there's been how many kids? One, two, you know, and they often struggle for many years before they even have this kid. And so there's this promise of a great nation, and there's this reality of one child or, you know, two warring twins in Jacob and Esau's case. And yet now, Jacob is finally seeing, despite all of the turmoil and drama and favoritism that's wrecked his family for years, he sees a cohesive nation with leaders and an identity growing and flourishing even in exile in Egypt. And he, in faith and trust in the Lord, has prophesied and, and 
given them an idea of their direction and charged them with a national identity to cling to God in the midst of their exile that he knows from Abraham's prophecy or God's revelation to Abraham, rather, that will last for 430 years. And I just think it's such a beautiful thing to see Jacob away from the land, failing in his last years, absolutely confident with his eyes fixed to the future that you'll take me back to the land that I've come from. And I'm confident that God will work out in you, my children, his purposes and his promises. And I I want to be buried in peace as almost a down payment in the land that God will surely give to me. And, And think about this. It's so interesting. You know, we don't often think Uh, And probably wisely, we don't often think about where we'll be buried. I imagine you probably have not had that thought too many times in your life. Gee, I wonder where I'm going to be buried. And yet, in the ancient world, and particularly in Egypt, that's a significant thing to be concerned about. Jen and I were just in Rome a couple weeks ago, and as you walk around outside the city, there's just miles and miles of mausoleums, right? Because people are very concerned what's going to last them afterwards. And even if you went, we went to the catacombs and uh, they'd buried a, a large number of early Christians in the first century of the church's life in Rome in these catacombs because they didn't have anywhere else to bury them. And when the ba- barbarians show up in the third and fourth century, the barbarians are interested in what when they find graves? What do you think people are interested in? Grave robbing, right? They're like, yay, we can go pillage these graves. And they go down and they discover the Christians were broke. And they're like, well, okay, that was not helpful to us, right? But There's this constant competition between I want to be buried and remembered and set up in a place and yet, and I want to be, you know, I I want to have some lasting future and the reality that, you know, everybody else doesn't really care about what you think and as soon as the dirt's covered, they're going to be like, oh, I wonder what they buried him with, right? I I was so struck by this this week. Jacob says, no, I want to be buried in dad's field, granddad's field, in the land that I know God will bring us back to. This is his his last moment to declare his confidence in God's promises. His whole life has been marked by his own inability to bring about what he wants to connive and plan and do. And the mature, dying Jacob says, the only thing that's been constant in my life is when God says, I will bring you back. I will deliver you. I will bring about my purposes. Man, a dead person can't do anything to bring things about. But he's like, I have this much confidence. Bury me where I know you will follow in 430 years. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful forward-looking trajectory. And, And just think. We'll talk about this with Joseph, too. Just think through those 430 years of pressure, those 430 years of of ethnically motivated violence to destroy this people, to assimilate them into the life of Egypt, to do anything to remove this threat. Under the the privations of slavery, there's this thought in their background. Yeah, but granddad's buried in our land. We got bones there. We got a future there. We know God will take us out. It's this last, like, you want to talk, you know, we talk about Luther saying, here I stand. Jacob's like, there I lie. Come, come join me. And I, I think it's a beautiful statement of his confidence in God when he has no ability to bring it about. There's nothing. He finishes this by drawing his feet into the bed to die, and yet he is confident that God will bring about 
what he has promised for his family. It's a beautiful forward-looking trajectory, and it makes a statement to his children that what he has prophesied to them, he believes. What he, what he knows of God's purposes, he's going to go ahead of. When we meet Jacob, he's fleeing out of the land because of his own desperate attempts to work things the way he wants them to. When we say goodbye to Jacob, he's peacefully drawing his feet into the bed saying, the one constant in my life is God's deliverance. But with that, down payment that he's left for them with his death, he's also left them with a view of their destiny. And I told you last week as we began to consider this, how important this would be for so many aspects of their life in exile, their life in a place where they're a nation without a home, they're a nation without any resources or help or protection, they're a nation under pressure of ideology and religion and... Uh, social and political pressure, and to preserve this identity, to understand their life as a nation, they need to understand why does my family have this leader, and why are you from that family, and who are we as a nation, and where are we headed in life, but particularly, they need hope. They need a biblical hope, a confidence that God will actually bring about what he has promised to, to do with them, and We can't step through every single one of these details this morning. I'll try to point out a couple interesting things as we go, and we're really going to focus in on Joseph and Judah because Jacob focuses in on Joseph and Judah. But I'd encourage you at some point, if you want to find this this, uh, as a little study, you can go and take those pages in your Bible that you only look at when I'm boring you to death, uh, the maps in the back of your Bible. and, And somewhere in those maps in the back of your Bible, you'll see a sketching out of where the tribes end up in the land. And maybe you've looked at that if you're a map nerd, but maybe not. You'll see that there's a little sketching out uh, somewhere in one, and maybe you have to raid your friend's Bible if yours doesn't have it, but it'll have a sketching out of, hey, here's how Joshua apportioned the land out, and here's where the people ended up. If you have that, you won't bother me by looking for it now. And that map corresponds very nearly perfectly to these blessings. In fact, it corresponds so perfectly that you can imagine what critics would say about this. They say what they always say when the Bible gets something right. Oh, this was prophecy after the fact. You see, what happened was, I'll do the when Sam's making fun of me being intellectual, right? What happened was, in our sophistication, we know Moses didn't really live, and nobody ever wrote this stuff. And sometime in the sixth century, while they were getting chased out of the land by the Babylonians, Somebody said, hey, we all live here. Let's pretend that this guy named Moses said that someday we would live here. I don't really know why you would write that while you're starving to death because the Babylonians are kicking you out of the land. But, you know, anyway. No, this is Moses' statement of hope. And it comes about not because somebody happened to go looking at the real estate map. They didn't look at Zillow in the 6th century. It comes about because God is powerful. 
And God is the one who said, this is what I will surely work out for my people. Because this distribution through the land, this forming of a nation, is a central part of his promises to bring about deliverance, not only for this people, but for the whole world. And they sit there in slavery, and they know that for Asher, verse 20 of Genesis 49, I just randomly picked this one, but for Asher, someday his land will be characterized by his food being rich and yielding up the sort of food that kings are going to pay for, right? So in other words, Chick-fil-A started in Asher's land, and they know someday in the future, people will come here to see whether when we open a new store, you can get free breakfast for a year, right? And imagine the impact of this. As you're living in slavery, thinking, this isn't my home. Someday, I'm going to join granddad's bones in the land that he has surely promised God will bless us. And there's some really fun ones in here. There's a... Um, I like this one, Issachar in verse 14. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds. You're like, is that a blessing? It is, I promise. When he saw that a resting place was good and the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear up the burdens. Now, this is a bad, I don't ever say this, but I'm going to say this right now. It's not a great translation, became a slave at forced labor. The reason the translation is hard is because the Hebrew is really hard. Um, and there's, the, the word isn't used a whole lot. But the, the characteristic of all this thing as a blessing is that he will be really good at laboring, okay? Uh, and go figure, if you look later, it's people from Issachar that do things like help build the temple, right? So I don't think the idea of slave at forced labor is right. I think it's more like he's a skilled laborer in big projects. Uh, but in case you're wondering, what does this blessing look like? This, he is, you guys seen Encanto? Okay, he's, he is Luisa in Encanto. He's the guy who sings, when they get together as tribes, he's like, I love the pressure. I'm going to put the donkeys on my shoulder. I mean, it is exactly the image. When she's carrying the donkeys around, Issachar's like, I can carry six donkeys. Wait, how many donkeys can you carry? I can carry six donkeys, right? Because this blessing is God will make me, God will take my capacity for work, and he'll bless all the tribes with this capacity to be somebody who's skilled at labor, right? Imagine that when you're in Egypt and you're being forced to labor to build pyramids and sphinxes and things that you don't care about. Someday this effort, someday this skill that I've had to learn in slavery will contribute instead to my people and to God's glory, right? And so these things are scattered through here as he paints out a picture of a nation at rest, a nation at work, a nation flourishing for God's purposes. And I just would point out to you in this beautiful picture, and I, I would encourage you to go look at how all the different nation, uh, tribes end up functioning in the nation. But one of the things that, that speaks to me very much of the realism of this, that it's not made up afterwards, and the beauty of this, the, the, the complexity of God's design, is that if you were making this up, you would make like one point about one person. You'd never think about the guy who goes around singing about being under pressure. Like, but, or, hey, this guy's land yields up royal delicacies. Like, we don't care about that. We care about, is he good at politics or war, right? No, but that's not the way God does business. God, in his kindness, views his singular focus on delivering his people from an infinite complexity and beauty of drawing all of his people as a whole into his work. You see, there's going to be one deliverer, and he's going to come from one tribe, 
And he's going to be a king who lasts forever. But this isn't the Avengers. This isn't Marvel. You don't need the one guy. There's a whole nation for a whole history of the nation that God says, will you graciously be drawn into the work and purposes I'm doing so you can experience that blessing? Isn't this true in, in the life of the church too? Paul says, not all of you have the same gift. Yeah, that's on purpose. You need a nation to bring about these things. You need all of you working together in harmony to each contribute your Chick-fil-A or your ability to bear six donkeys or your, you know, the guy that has the real estate, I think it's uh, Naftali on the seacoast so that we can all eat seafood, right? The people that have the, the, the trading post. All of that together working in complexity around this consciousness of God's making them a people and working out his purposes. Yeah, all of that together flourishing in the way God meant, humbly dependent on him, that's how he brings about his purposes in the world. And I just think that's a beautiful thing as they're sitting there. Well, Dad, I thought they said Levi was going to be the priest. And I thought they said that Judah would be the one from whom the king comes. Yeah, that's right, son. Well, then why don't we just stay in Egypt and eat melons and cucumbers? Well, because we have a part in God's purpose, too. We're going to open the world's first Chick-fil-A. Right? I mean, whatever it is, right? But uh, can you understand the hope and the sustaining nature of God's working, but he's working through his people as a whole? I just think it's a beautiful statement of hope. Now, notice particularly here that there are two brothers, there are two tribes, really, that are zoomed in on. The first one is Joseph. Or the first one I want to draw your attention to, rather, is Joseph. He gets a very long section here from verse 22 to verse 26 in chapter 49. Joseph's a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. You're like, is that a good thing? Yeah, it's because, I don't know if you ever gardened or you had to like pick weeds for your parents or something like that, right? But when something's growing, you're like, oh, I'm going to trim this up. And it's like, nah, no, you're not, <laughs> right? Like the leaves and the grinds are going everywhere. This is the picture of, of the, the absolute robustness of, of Joseph's tribe. I mean, you cannot keep this thing in check. It's just growing everywhere. Um, so not only is he going to be deeply prosperous, but when he comes under pressure, when he's attacked, archers bitterly attack at him. They shoot at him and harass him, but his bow remained firm. His arms were agile. Why? From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, for there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, and the God of your father who helps you. So when there comes in this nation's life, when there, there's adversity from outside that comes against them, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's tribes, are often the ones who, who bring the military might to say, uh-uh, not today. But how will they do that when they're successful at that? When they try it on their own, they usually get slaughtered. How do they do it? Because it sounds so much to me like David's uh, Psalms where he says, God trains my hands for war because it's God who works through them. He's their shepherd. He's the Almighty who blesses you. And then these blessings of the deep and blessings of the womb and the blessings of your father that have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors. It's like everything that God promised in the past will be magnified in the future so that the utmost bound of the everlasting hills will just be bursting with this prosperity. May, be, may, they, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. You know, that comes true in the life of the nation. I told you this a couple weeks ago, but if you track the life of Ephraim, particularly through Israel's history, 
they're huge in the censuses. Their, their numbers are huge. They often su supply the leadership around which the northern ten tribes coalesce. They provide the, the strength to protect their brothers. They they're, uh, become synonymous for blessing in Israel, just like Jacob promised. And yet, what happens? They abandon that little element in there of it's God who works this for you. And Ephraim eventually becomes a byword for God's judgment on a people that have forgot him. But do you know that this element here, this destiny that Jacob prophesied for them, it's not done. Now we know them as a byword for disobedience. But do you know what the prophets promise? Someday we'll remember again Ephraim as a byword for God's redemption. Because where are they now? They're scattered through the nations. Nobody knows where the ten tribes are. They're scattered through the nations in exile. How do you get a people to have an identity? Well, they live together in a land. What's wrong right now? They're in captivity in Egypt. It's hard to be a nation when you're swallowed up by another nation. And God says, I'll surely make you a nation. You know what's harder? To gather people that have been scattered for thousands of years out amongst the nations. You know what brings God great glory? When he says, I still fulfill my promises. I'll bring them back. I say that for several reasons, but one of them is to remind you that this story isn't over. God's purpose is not over. His goals haven't been completed. How do you know that? Jesus isn't back yet. His promises that Jacob is a down payment for, they'll all come true. But now notice not only the blessing on Joseph, but the blessing on Judah. Chapter 49, verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. We talked last week and the week before about the succession and the difficulties with Leah's sons and how Judah is now not only the de facto firstborn, but the very real leader of the nation. Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him? Okay, all that's very nice. If you're going to have leadership in a land, it's very nice that people say, oh, that's like a baby lion, and I don't want to mess with that. This is, very, this is very good. But now notice that this moves from simply someone who's a great leader into something more. Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. The rule of the nation isn't going anywhere. And his, the, the ruler's staff from between his feet, his posterity and the, the ongoing nature of kings from him, it's not going to stop. Until when? Until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. There's a lot of debate about exactly what this means, and we could puzzle our way through it in many different ways, but I think here Shiloh is a proper name. It's a, it's a name, almost a title for someone. It's derived from the word for peace, and it's a name of a ruler who will come. And we'll see this again later as, as this prophecy that picks up on Genesis 3.15 and on uh, Genesis 12, as there's a promise that first of all there will be a ruler who will crush the serpent's head and then eventually it will come from Abraham. Now this promise is gaining focus. It's going to come 
through a king that comes from this specific tribe. And then we'll see in Numbers 24 and some other places as it gains more and more focus that this ruler from Judah, not only will that leadership never depart from him, but it's because it's going to be an eternal king. And we see that uh, if you've ever gone to Chris's um, Chris, his Christmas uh, youth party where he traces through this promise all the way through through uh, biblical history up until the moment that Christ comes, uh, you know that I don't have the 45 minutes necessary to do that right now. But this is a promise that focuses the hope of the nation and the hope of all the nations on one who to, to, to whom the obedience of all the peoples will come. And then it describes him as a victorious ruler in ways that are unfamiliar to us. The tying is full of the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. You're like, what's that about? Well, you see, you eat from your nice vines, right? You don't tie your donkey up to it because what's the donkey going to do, right? But if you're so rich that you own all the choice vines, then you're like, let him eat money. I don't care if he eats money, right? And so it's a, it's a picture of how prosperous the people will be when they don't even care about a donkey eating a choice vine because they got lots of choice vines. Why did he wash his garments in wine? Well, not to make them white, but because wine's expensive. It's like, I buy the best detergent, right? His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. You're like, that sounds very weird. No, it's a description of how beautiful he will be, about how uh, dull is not the right picture, but it's, it's a, a picture of, you know, how white is his teeth? Man, his smile is amazing, right? And it's, this is all a picture of the power and the victorious prosperity that this king will bring to his people. Imagine what this is like when you're living as a son of Judah in captivity. Someday, God will bring about a king from this line. Now, very quickly, we have maybe 10 minutes left here. I want to focus you on Joseph's dread. Notice this trajectory. Jacob has promised and described the onward path of the nation. And as they move into this dark time, they know not only their hope, but specifics of how God someday will work through them. And they have anchors for their hearts. And then... In Jacob's death, they have a down payment in the land, a a certain knowledge of where granddad is and where we're heading. But they also have some concern because the brothers themselves, who have just been blessed, know that they have been very bad. And they know that, that Joseph's reception of them was very much related to his desire to see and honor his father again. If you remember back when, when they are in this fraught scene, when they first discover that Joseph is alive, how many times he says the words, is my father alive? I want to see my father. I want to see my brother. Now, Benjamin's fine. Benjamin probably doesn't even come to this meeting, right? But the rest of them are like, dad's dead. And we're stuck in a land where our brother is the boss, and there's no longer any reason for him not to want to take his vengeance. Just as an aside, Luther says this, the power of sin over our conscience and over our peace and over our confidence in God for the rest of our lives is very powerful. Want a reason to flee from sin amongst many? It's 
been years, and they've experienced kindness and grace from their brother for years, and yet their hearts are still scarred and shaken by the, the provoking of their conscience and the memory of what they've done. Sadly, it seems that in the face of their fear, they resort once again to the old Jacobite trick of deception because they fabricate a command from their father, as it seems, to charge Joseph from their now passed on father, forgive your brothers. Dad's dead, but they're going to try to leverage him one more time as a means of protecting themselves from their brother. And they send a messenger ahead of them, which I suppose is prudent. If you're going to ask somebody not to kill you, I suppose it's best that you text them instead of showing up in person and handing them a weapon while you're asking about it. Notice for the seventh time now how Joseph responds to something like this. When the messengers spoke to them, Joseph wept. Verse 17. They follow it up. They do come in person. They've prepared the way. Verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. I think that's conditioned by this memory of his dream. And we remember when he was a kid and he said, we were all going to bow down. Maybe now was the time to also do that again, just to remind him like, hey, we're on board with that. We remember. <laughs> Be nice. So they, they bow down and they say, we are your servants. And I think he's still weeping. And notice what Joseph says to them. Do not be afraid. And, and literally, am I God? Am I God? Now, if that sounds familiar to you, it's because it's something that, that has to be in Joseph's own family story. Do you remember what Rachel says when she sees her sister bearing son after son after son after son. She goes to Jacob and she says, what? Give me children or I die. Right? You remember that? Give me sons or I die. What does Jacob say? Am I in the place of God? You think that this is in my power? Now I think he was angry when he said that, but it's true. And what does Rachel have to work through in her life? She tries all the things, the tricks and the promises and the bribes, no sons. And eventually she prays and she humbles herself and God blesses her with who? Joseph. I think that's a, 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 a founding memory in his mind that sustained him through all this. He says, am I, am I God? And now I want you to notice his dread here because this is so helpful for us. Genesis 50, 20 is one of those verses you probably have underlined in your Bible for good reason. And it's one of those verses that is often approached, and rightly so, as I said at the beginning, as a systematic theology verse establishing God's absolute sovereignty over the lives of his people and the purposes of his plan. And that's true. That's a true implication from this verse. Well, you know that. And I, I want to draw your attention to it maybe from a different angle. Am I God? You meant this evil against me. Notice the reality of it. You meant evil against me. There's clarity there. There's no misunderstanding. 
oh, they accidentally threw me in the pit, but it was because of the way they were raised and they were off their meds that day. And No, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about the salvation of his people, right? Oh, just skip the verse. Hold on. In order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And so he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. There's a lesson here for all of us. Joseph has spent his life confidently clinging to the sovereignty of God. He's absolutely aware while he's in prison, while he's in captivity, and while he's on the throne of Egypt, or at the viceregal throne of Egypt, that God is surely working out his purposes and plans. We've talked about that a lot, and how that would be a comfort to his soul, and how God helped him in that way forget in the right ways the difficulty that he's endured. But he's also a very active person. We've talked about how Joseph is always seizing the responsibilities that God provides him. He's always working hard for God's purposes and plans. He is a person who is not unafraid of the power and authority that he has here. But all of that in his life, his confidence and his hope and his responsibility is bound up in his dread and his fear of God. There's never a moment in his life that the sovereignty and the goodness of God do not encourage in his heart the fear of God. I picked dread on purpose because not only is it a D, but because it's a way that the patriarchs describe God, the dread of their father Isaac. The goodness and the sovereignty of God bring about in his heart the right, delightful, but overwhelming dread of God. Guys, as you grow in the life of the church and as you grow in your families, whether you're parents or other things, and God gives you responsibilities and authority and the ability to care and, and work with other people, whatever responsibilities come your way in your life, whatever leadership you exercise, this is so important to remember. This question, am I God? No. It's never on us to bring about the plans and purposes that God intends. When you're overwhelmed with the responsibilities that are before you, you think, as Joseph did, I will work hard, but it's God who brings about the work. It's God who my confidence is in. When you're parenting children and you just don't know how to help bring their heart where it ought to be, you don't say, oh my goodness, do I tackle this from five different angles? No. Am I God? No, I'm going to be confident that God will work it out. Do you know what patience and power that gives you? You see it in, in this right here. He comforts them and speaks kindly to them. That is spiritual patience at work. When you're wrestling through with somebody in a Galatians 5 sort of way, you point out to them something that maybe you've pointed out to them many times before that they're weak in and that they need to stop sinning and trust the Lord in, and you're working with them in the life of the church, and you're like, would you just please understand this and work through this? No, you have patience that you pour out all of your life, and you work hard for God's glory, but you don't have to worry about the result of it. It's God who will bring about this work. That's the only way to have spiritual patience with somebody. You can't bring it about, but you can pour your life out because God will bring it about. And when you're in a place where you could bring about 
as he could here, a vindictiveness or a, a difficulty, a lack of patience. There's a restraint there because it's an awareness that to your own, to his master, to, to, to God, the master, each one of his servants will stand or fall. And as Paul says, he surely will make them stand. As we so often look at this from the outside angle of it as a statement about God's sovereignty, which it is, but I want you to see it from the inside angle that this sovereignty and goodness produces in him a humility and a fear that produces the right patience, the right love, the right words of kindness and encouragement, and the right path forward to build this nation for God's purposes. Joseph is never overwhelmed by what God brings in his life because he's always overwhelmed by God. And it's a beautiful summary statement on Joseph's life. And I love this. Joseph remains faithful. Jacob's the down payment in the other land. Joseph says, when you leave, take me with you. His dying statement, I'm here. In a sense, I brought you here. But when you leave, you're going to take me with you. And of course, we see in Exodus that they do. It's the perfect counterpart to his father. I brought you here, and he's there, but I'm going to go back, and you're going to take me with you. You have unfinished business. You need to take me to rest 430 years from now. It's a statement in his life that's a confidence in his fear of God that God will surely, notice this in verse 25, God will surely take care of you, I think you could fill in there, as he has surely taken care of me, and you shall carry my bones up from here. Let's pray. Father, may you shape us by your word, by the hope that we have from your word, by our confidence in our King and our joy in working out your purposes in this world. May you shape us with the fear of you. We pray it in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.